There's so much I'd like to be able to say, to speak to where each of you is and offer everyone what might be most useful for them. I'd really love to be able to do that, um, but I'm really aware that I probably won't be able to do that. And in my practice of coming to sit here, there's a moment I take with not just expressing my appreciation and gratitude to the Buddha and all the wise awakened beings of all times and places, there's also a moment I take to just kind of offer it back to them. To say, well, you know, you guys, this is on you. Um, in the sense that all of us, as we practice, explore and share and live the Dharma as we've learnt it as best we're able, there's a, for me, a really helpful dimension of just seeing that we're doing what's possible for us. And a kind of a space that's offered, that becomes available when we acknowledge that. That balance between our deepest aspiration and what may be the circumstances of our actuality. And of course our tendency is not that. Our tendency is to make it somehow all about ourselves in so many different ways. The, the Dharma teachings invite us to reflect on the way we center ourselves in so many activities, in so many ways. We kind of tend to orient towards the sense of me and make that primary and central. Now I think I said this has its roots in our biological survival imperatives that are important within a certain context but profoundly problematic when enacted unconsciously and universally or institutionally in our world. We see how we start with a sense of primary concern for me and what is close to me, or who is close to me, and what is similar to myself, in terms of family, perhaps in terms of culture, or ethnicity, perhaps in terms of species. Or something else, that way we kind of orient around both what we take ourselves to be and what we take to be more similar than something else to ourselves and create easily a hierarchy of care and concern that can lead to a sense of separating, disconnecting, objectifying, distancing, a loss of resonance that allows in our own hearts, in our lives and in our world. At times this tragic unfolding of, of harm, of exploitation, of oppression, of living things, of living systems, of parts of ourselves and each other. And this is profoundly and painfully hurtful and harmful 
not just to those who are subject to it outside, but equally to ourselves, so far as we unconsciously or consciously participate in this. And this centering around the sense of me and survival of self as the primary thing, or the advancement of self as the primary thing, plays out in what we talk about as greed, as hatred, as delusion, this taking and consuming what might be for my benefit or advantage without disregard for whether others have enough or whether others will be affected. And this, what we talk about as, as hatred, the, the way in which we lose the capacity sometimes to value, to recognize, like hatred is to, in a sense, completely withhold any sense of value from something. To say it's just completely, it's nothing, it's bad, it's wrong, it's, well, they're bad, they're wrong. That allows us to disregard, to disparage, and even to destroy. Because we give it no value, no importance, that which we have. And so, kind of in the sense of, it's like a, a contemptuous response to things that we've placed outside our heart completely. And the delusion that arises in the belief that we are somehow separate from, apart from, living in a bubble of me, or mine, or us, or ours, that is somehow separated in absolute terms from what is around us. A life lived from these places and a world born out of these patternings is a life and a world in crisis. And it's a spiritual crisis that is at the heart of the crises we see of ecological destruction and species loss, of climate destabilization and the profound impact on living beings and systems and things. And the social justice crisis likewise within the human community born of this disregarding of what we've seen as not the same as ourself. In so many different ways we do this as a collective humanity. And at times, of course, within our own selves, within our own experience, we can see how we reject parts of our experience. Or how we imagine and somehow believe that what we do and how we are is not affected by and does not affect everything else. Part of the spiritual crisis is that we don't see it as such. That we think it's because people are bad or stupid or greedy or hateful. And in a sense, yes, but also no. Because these forces are within us all. And to engage with a spiritual crisis is to un is needs to come from understanding 
what's going on fundamentally. To not blame the other or ourselves for the fact that there is this, that we call greed, that we call hatred, that we call the delusion of separateness. But to see that, oh, it comes from somewhere that didn't start somewhere. It comes from biological evolutionary survival drives. No one woke up one day in a world that was free of greed, hatred and delusion and decided, okay, I'm going to start this thing and make it happen and I'm going to take over the world. No, it didn't happen that way. But the fact that we've arrived at the point where so much harm, destruction, devastation, and not just that, but profound loss of well-being and fulfillment and satisfaction of peace and of ease in human life is the condition we encounter. And we don't have to go back and look for why and who and how and when because we won't find a place where it began. But what we can do is say, oh, if I'm here, if I find myself here as a human being, if I find my country, my culture, my society, my community here, how can I address this? How can I engage with this? To seek to transform these patterns as they manifest within what we call the inner, as they manifest in the relational between ourselves and others, and equally as they manifest in the structures and the institutions and the organizational frameworks that our world operates within. All of this is spiritual practice. All of this is called for as a response to where we find ourselves, it seems to me. Where our attention goes, where we are engaged, is in my view ultimately less important than that we understand that we are engaged in something this big. And the fact that for some of us, we'll be just struggling to keep our, our life together and our world together is not separate from that larger question. It's because our culture is organized in a way that doesn't support human life. The larger context undermines it again and again in terms of structures, institutions and emphasis. And within that, of course, the human heart keeps emerging and expressing and manifesting in so many ways of people, both at an individual level and also groups organizing to see what can be done to contribute, to transform, to make a difference. And both in spiritual terms and political terms and in other frameworks too, this movement keeps emerging into our culture just as in our own hearts, the calling for something more than what the, the kind of the flattened out materialistic world offers us. It just keeps coming back in. And at some level, every moment offers us an opportunity in regard to this. I talked about practice, I think maybe yesterday I mentioned the sense of it, giving our attention to start to relate to and organize our life around the principle of offering rather than looking for what we get. 
What can we give? The Buddha spoke of practice. It's great to practice profound wisdom, deep um, unification, concentration of mind, to practice precepts, all these things wonderful. But sometimes he acknowledged not always possible. But he said, and it's true, it's always possible to practice generosity as a foundation, as a baseline, as a beginning. Generosity isn't just giving things away. It's giving ourselves to whatever it is that we care about and value. Because in doing so, it becomes stronger, whether in the cultivation of our own heart and mind or in the engagement with the structures and the patterns and the orientations of our culture. It makes a difference. Paying attention. We talk about paying attention. We do a lot of paying attention in the world of meditation and Buddha Dharma. The word we translate, that gets translated sometimes as mindfulness, although I much prefer the word wakefulness, because mindfulness needs bodyfulness and heartfulness to be the wholeness. But wakefulness seems to express the whole of it to me. But anyway, there's words. It also translates as remembering. The attention we're giving can also be understood as a remembering. And it's both a remembering, we could say, of what we might have in a certain way known but forgotten. Like rediscovering the deeper innate wisdom of our hearts and our minds that we've lost contact with. But it also has a meaning in terms of remember as a response to its opposite of being dismembered. Now dismembered is a painful word if one contemplates it. Kind of the loss of one's limbs or substantial part. It speaks to a way in which we cut things and break things apart that are whole. To dismember something is to do that. To remember it, to return those parts to wholeness. Part of the function of sati wakefulness, mindfulness, heartfulness, bodyfulness, filling this human experience with presence, attentiveness, sensitivity, care, is that it starts to heal and reconnect the separated parts initially of our internal structures and systems. And we start to include the scared places and the angry places and the confused places rather than rejecting them. And the places that hurt, rather than saying, I don't want to feel them. We start to include this. And in the wholeness, something more than just the parts is revealed. Likewise too, in the including of what we've seen or imagined or believed or been told is none of my business or nothing to do with me because it's over there and it's them and they're different. Or they're creatures, they're not human beings, and human beings are what we care about. As we start to pay attention, we feel how they touch us. How we can be touched by the presence of a of another creature or the leaf on a tree. Or just the very attention we give to a space of something, a plant or a, a view that moves us in a way where we feel something deep and profound, sweet and beautiful. And we may have noticed these moments occasionally amongst the 
busyness and the reactivity and the falling asleep and the wondering what on earth I'm doing here. Because it starts to happen as we pay attention that the, the preciousness. And I would say, though we don't always feel comfortable with the language, but I would say the preciousness, preciousness and the sacredness of life start to speak to us. We start to feel it. We start to notice it. And we might notice it in particulars, but one of the defining features of the particulars is that we feel connected to them and by them and with them more and more. And this remembering is at the heart of what is called for, what is needed. Again, in ourselves, with each other, and in our world. So we can look at what we're doing here as in terms of Dharma practice, in terms of meditation. We see that there's a process of motivation, aspiration and intention. We First of all, motivation is what we care about. And if we care about about freedom, about peace, then we think, well, maybe I could seek for this. Maybe I could look for what's possible here. That's our aspiration. And then our intention is, and so then I'll do this in the service of that possibility. Might not get me all the way there today, but it'll take me maybe one step in that direction. So I see my attention is captured by reactivity. And I care about freedom, but my mind feels bound and captured. Because I care about freedom, I make the aspiration, can I free my mind? I wish to free my mind from being captured by reactivity. And I make the intention then to train by paying attention to my body, to this breath, to one step at a time, one moment at a time. And something begins to unfold in that direction so too when we when we look into our world and we feel a wish for for peace for justice for the well-being of all all that lives all that is we feel that as a motivation we start to aspire to well maybe this could be possible and what can i do that will contribute to that we make an intention to say i'll do this whatever it might be. It might just be that we, we say, I'm going to pick up a piece of rubbish every day in my community. It might be I'm going to write to the politicians or the people in power a letter. Or I'm going to gather together with some friends and say, what can we do in the service of what we care about? From the motivation of our caring through the aspiration of our sense of, yes, more is possible. This was the Buddha's journey too. His aspiration to discover what was possible for a human being. Led him to choose to go out, to seek what that would be, not knowing how he would find it. Taking years to find his way. Via quite a few, what he later described as dead ends. It didn't lead where he was going to or wishing for. This is what it means to engage with Dharma practice, to explore 
What is it that brings the deepest well-being for ourself, each other, and the world? And so we are called upon to address the inner and outer cultures. Cultures of domination, oppression and exploitation. And in our world, take primary forms in terms of patriarchy and sexism, in terms of white supremacy and racism, in terms of a sort of a normalizing or a centering of what is defined as normal with an exclusion of whatever is less common. And there's not a word that I have for exactly describing that phenomena, but it happens in relationship to ability, to neurology, to culture, to appearance, to so many things. It's not a small thing to embark on spiritual practice. Mostly when we begin, we don't realize what we're getting into. As I said to someone in one of the groups today, uh, uh, a very well-known teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, once observed, he's from a Tibetan master, he, he once observed, he was quite a controversial character, it has to be said, but he had some good things to say as well. Um, he once said, hmm, of this path, hmm, best not to begin. But having begun, best finish. <laughs> because of course we don't know what we're getting into. How could we if we're entering something new? And even just in ourselves we realize, oh there's a bit more to this than just getting calm and feeling a bit better. I hope you've got that far. In terms of realizing there's more to it. I'm not saying you're supposed to have got to that point of getting calm and feeling better. Because sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. It's not an end point but it is a territory we may usefully pass through on occasion. But when we start to contemplate that it's not just our journey here, but something larger, it can be daunting, but it's also uplifting. Because it also means we're not doing this ourselves. No one else is going to do it for us, or could, but we are not doing this ourselves. And one of the strong tendencies of the whole way our culture has individualized the orientations of almost everything is that we keep getting sort of in a way pushed back into a perspective that looks at it from just me and just where I am and somehow trying to do it from there. In which case, it's pretty difficult. In fact, it might even be impossible and why bother? But that's actually not what it's about. Because in this process of individualizing, of separating and, and creating what are artificial and fundamentally untrue boundaries 
between ourselves and each other, other people, other creatures, other life forms, even that which we might call inanimate materials, of which, of course, we're completely made of. And everything likewise. In that process, what happens is, you know, in the, in the, in the primary values that are promoted in the culture of, of capitalism, of, of consumerism, of materialism, it's really, there's only value in ownership and, and consumption and having things, keeping them, taking them for ourselves, and doing some more of that. And it's empty. It doesn't give satisfaction. It doesn't fulfill us. Consequently, we have accelerated and amplified how much of it we do with how much stuff to try and get some fulfillment out of it, which it can't give us. It can't give it to us. Because in the very orientation that that involves of making things separate from ourselves that we control, that we own, that we manipulate, that we hold for ourselves and don't offer to others, we lose our connection, our direct knowing of the preciousness and the sacredness of life. And it's that which our hearts long to be in touch with. And the boundless heart of the Dharma of which we are not outside. It recognizes the preciousness and the sacredness in all. I had this thought when I was reflecting on what to speak about. I, I was looking at the word sacredness and I realized it's very similar. Sacred and scared. They're very similar. You just move the sea. Now, it's not exactly right, but it's close enough. Like, oh, you can make a good sort of thing about this. It's all about the sea. How do you see it? Where do you put the seeing? Because if you look at it one way, the world we live in is scary. And if we're living from that place of being separate, it's terrifying. Because we're going to die. And we're going to die unsatisfied. If we're trying to satisfy ourselves by stuffing things in. It doesn't work. But if we see through that, what is revealed and what I'm speaking to is sacred. It's something that we recognize even if we can't speak it in a way that captures it. Because it, the word's done, but we can know it. The fear goes away. It doesn't mean that the tenderness goes away. That the Resonance and the sensitivity and sometimes the oh of life, the oh doesn't go away. But the fear that drives so much of what goes on is not something we are bound to enact and it's not something we're bound to be driven and dominated by. And it's not something that has to dominate our world if we see it and understand that collectively we need to address this. 
And so we've spoken about this boundless capacity for caring about, to feel connected, to feel sensitive, and the, the quality of trembling. It's uh, anukampati, is the, the word the Buddha used. You don't need to remember those words. But the sense of trembling, that tenderness, the way we resonate when we're aware of harm to others or ourselves, and when we're aware of what is beautiful and delightful too. It's we're touched in the very deepest core of our being because it's not something else or somewhere else. Something in us is connected to that and so we feel it so deeply. And the natural response that comes out of that is to, to wish to seek, to prepare, to protect and to heal and to repair and end the harm in relationship to that. We talk about this as karuna, this movement of compassion. And we also talk about what we call mudita, or a joyful appreciation, the way in which we connect and need to connect and do connect with what is lovely, what is beautiful, what is blessed, and how this is equally an important practice to undertake, to engage in. That this too is here, just as what is tragic and terrible and hard to bear, so too in life there is that which is beautiful and blessed and uplifting. And somehow our heart, staying open to both of these, finds balance, finds its ground. And this ground we speak of as equanimity, as balance, upeka is the word the Buddha used which understands that things are the way they are because of the conditions. That the way, the, where we are right now, we can't and couldn't have been somewhere else because of what came before. That doesn't mean that the next moment is already formed or limited by where we are now. But we need to start from here, not reject it. We might understand that some of what is here is not acceptable. But we need to accept that this is where we begin. Because only there do we have traction and ground in the immediacy of what's true from which we can move. And we have this, this quality of equanimity, of peace and balance comes also from understanding that we have deeper roots in Dharma, we could say, in truth, in what is beautiful and blessed. Deeper roots in this than we have in what is destructive and disconnected. Or else we wouldn't be here. Our hearts wouldn't survive. They're way too sensitive. And even in the heart of the most deeply impacted human being, there is still that which shines with caring. But it may not shine very far. And part of what gives us a place from which we can rest is to understand that the circumstances here are not in our control. We are not 
to blame for how it is, although we may have some responsibility that we need to own. But the outcomes likewise going forward are not in our control because we are not the only condition influencing what's happening. So many things come to bear in each moment, in each circumstance. But all these things are subject to our influence. We don't control, but we make a difference. This is what we see in our practice. We can't control what happens, but the way we practice makes a difference. It really does. And you'll see that. Of course, we'd like to be able to determine the outcome and know what it will look like, when it will come. We're not given that. None of us ever get given that. But looking back, we can see, oh yeah, it has made a difference. And not getting into the measuring. Our mind likes me to say, oh, it's a big difference. Oh, it's just a small difference. A difference means we're moving in the direction we want to be moving. Maybe we think we need to be moving more quickly. Maybe that would be true. But that's actually more important. The direction we're moving is more important than the speed at which we're traveling. Despite what the fear and the urgency of our circumstances might suggest. From a spiritual point of view, it's always that. Directionality. Not measuring speed of travel. And what also supports equanimity here and in some of the, the most deeply tragic circumstances of the world that we might be aware of, it seems to me if we contemplate them, we see we're looking at the loss of life, human life and other life, and the loss of its possibility, its potential for what it could be, what it might have been if this wasn't what was happening. Whether we're talking about the specific harm or oppression of a group or a place or the collective trajectories of destruction climate and ecology are subject to. And if we contemplate, and in the Dharma we're invited to contemplate, that we're not here forever. It's part of why life is precious as it is, that something shines through it, but the form it takes is not forever. All of us will die. All things will die. If we contemplate our own mortality, we start to see it's not about trying to stay here forever because it's not possible. And so the same thing applies to our world. It's not here forever. And of course, I'd like myself and my friends and everyone I care for, in fact, I'd like everyone to have a long, healthy life to a full age. But it's not what will happen. And maybe that's true of this particular living system as well. I don't know that. It's not what I wish for. When we look at what's possible, my grandmother's 106. That's like, like a long way to go. If I'm going to live to that ripe old age, my sister didn't make it halfway there. Actually, she did, didn't she? Sorry, 54. My maths is bad. But it's like she didn't die young. She didn't die old. What if our world was the same? It's been here a few billion years already, so it can't die young. It's 
already a bit late for that. At one point, the sun will either run out of steam and go cold, in which case everything freezes, or it will overcook and explode and cook everything out here. So one way or another, we know that's going to happen. It's just a case of when life on this planet ends. Because it can't go forever. Nothing does. And for me, once, once I frame it as it's not about staying here forever, the question then becomes, it's not about how long I'm here or we're here. It's about how we're here. It's not about how long we live. It's about how we live. And that we can begin to attend to right now, irrespective of that other trajectory of how long. To align our lives as far as we can, as best we're able, with wisdom and compassion. With the understanding that we are not separate and that our heart calls us to live a life that expresses, embodies and supports that, which we could call a compassionate life. This gives a sense of steadying to the heart like no other, that we've done what we could here to align. But it's not in our control what happens or how far we travel that way. But we're doing what we can to align. Just as in the practice of meditation, we do that. We're trying to align with wakefulness, with openness, with care, with interest, with sensitivity, as best as we can. And in doing so, we also start to find this quality of alignment has a depth to it. That, like a keel on a boat, runs deep into our life in such a way that just as a keel on a boat, you know, that bit that sticks out the bottom, that stops it tipping over in the wind and the current and the waves, that quality of alignment in ourselves as a human being that runs through although is not formed of our physicality because it's equally of our heart and our mind but it runs through into the earth and not just the physical earth but the very ground of our existence I mean we sometimes wonder about where we're going as human beings do we wonder at all about where we came from You know, there are various ideas and models, but there's something profound to contemplate here. And when we contemplate the death of someone maybe we care for, it's not just how sorrowful it is that they are gone, although of course it would be so, and is, but how amazing it is that they were here at all. Really, we can't explain that. We can't explain what it is that's changed in the moment of the departure any more than what's happened in the moment of emergence that life comes in. And something of that. We were connected to what is deeper, what is vaster, what is 
inexplicable, unexpressible, and yet knowable, tangible, immediate. And out of that, we may find a place of fearlessness. It doesn't mean we don't tremble for the harm, because we do. Because that's what it means to be human beings. It doesn't mean we're not afraid, because of course we will be. But that we have a sense that what we want to make our choices from is not that place of fear, but from our sense of what is most true and authentic and aligned. And that becomes the guiding light. That becomes the ground in which we can rest. Not the outcomes, which aren't in our hands, but the alignment that has both an upright quality and a deeply grounded element. And that alignment includes finding the balance where sometimes we need to take care of this one or these ones that close to me are my responsibility. Children, parents, community. But that we don't do so by closing our heart around this one or these ones. We allow our heart to expand out. To include but not be limited by these. And see where and when and what is possible here. The Buddha spoke of the possibility of this boundless heart. He said, like a mother would protect with her life her child, her only child, so too with a boundless heart could one cherish all beings. Like a parent or a responsible adult would protect with their very own life a child, so too with a boundless heart we could cherish all beings. Now, of course, not every mother or parent or responsible adult was ideal at that particular function. So we're talking about an archetype here, not trying to make a sort of an ideal out of it to put upon ourselves. And Jesus said, you know, whatever you do to the least of my, usually brothers, but let's say siblings, Whatever you do to the least of my siblings, that you do unto me. It's true. Not just unto him, but actually unto ourselves. Whatever we do to the least of our family, siblings. And it's not just the human family, but the living family. We do to ourselves. John Francis was a remarkable African-American man who witnessed a oil spill 
near where he lived in the coast of America and as a result made a commitment to not use mechanized transport and to remain in silence. And he walked for 20 years around the country, not speaking, but raising the concern he had with what was happening in terms of the harm to ecology. became known as Planet Walker. You can look him up. He's a remarkable character. One of the things he said was, we are the environment. We're not in it. This is me now. We're not in it. We are the environment. <coughs> what does that mean for us? What it means to me, it seems, is that whatever we put into our heart touches the world. Whatever we put into the world touches our heart. For better or for worse, everything we do makes a difference. And this was at the heart of the Buddha's teachings. He said, everything you do shapes your experience, your world, your life. Pay attention to it. Take care. Move into your life from kindness, from generosity, from care. Because you will be hurt By not doing so. Individually and collectively this is true. And so we practice wakefulness and heartfulness to break out of the pattern, the cycle, the compulsion and the habits of enacting what is harmful to ourselves and each other and the world. And it's really important to be able to recognize, of course, that's not our intention. It's actually very few times someone's actual intention to cause harm. Much more people think, I'm protecting this by destroying that. Or I'm advancing this that I care about by not giving a toss about all of that. People don't see. We don't see. It's called ignorance. The Buddha talked about avidya, not understanding how things are. And in that not understanding, creating, perpetuating, and being subject to suffering. To something profoundly hard to bear, which goes beyond the unpleasant and painfulness of experience, of bodily experience, of emotional experience, of psychological experience. Yes, that is suffering. But the profound, the deeper suffering is the disconnect, the breach of our relationship with what is true and which is ultimately our ground. And so it's important that we recognize where we might be unconscious and that we look into our world and see where collectively we're unconscious and maybe we put our hands up and say, hey, what's going on here? We need to become informed, we need to become educated. And the principle, if you seek peace, act for justice, it applies to our inner life equally as to our outer life. We can't find inner peace in absolute terms when we leave anything out of the field of care. 
That's not to say there can't be profound peacefulness in the midst of difficult and distressing conditions and circumstances for others or oneself. This is possible for us as human beings. But in the fullness, the full fruition of what can be known by way of peace, it cannot be located somewhere separate from everything else. It must include all. So we can ask ourselves, you know, what can I give here? What's my offering? How can that look? Where does it need to be offered to those immediate and near, equally into the larger field of the world? Where's my field of engagement at this moment and in the next? What will be our legacy to this world and what will be our offering to the shared humanity, the human spirit, we could say, that which is blessed and sacred and timeless, that pours through this living moment, this present, that we call now, timelessly, unstoppably. What is it that brings life into being? caring for its well-being. Deep within us, all this is here. You don't need to answer that question. But let it rest in your heart. What are we moved to offer here? What are we moved to give? And trust that we'll find a way to respond to that call in our heart. And the call of our world as best we're able. Let's sit quietly for a few moments.
May we all in our practice here together and in our lives come to rest deeply in the fullness of alignment with our heart in its depths, in its blessedness, in its sacredness, this boundless heart of life. for our own deep well-being, for the welfare of all beings and the well-being of all that lives and all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.